Good morning, Grace Chapel. Hey, if you've got children between the ages of uh, preschool and through fifth grade, they're already started, making their way back to the uh, door to my left, to your right, gather back there, and you'll be going down to get some amazing teaching from God's Word uh, through some very, very faithful teachers. Thank you, praise team. It's good to see you all from up here. Yeah, I've been down on your level for so long, I need to... Um, I was just, as we were singing and worshiping, I was thinking about some of the families in our church family um, who are experiencing illness, sickness, um, and I, and I, just off the top of my head, it was eight families, eight families, just this week. So uh, I thought, let's pray, let's pray together before we look into God's Word, and let's uh, pray for them in particular. Heavenly Father, uh, you bring to our heart uh, from time to time, things that we need to focus on and get our mind off other things. And Lord, before we look into your most precious word, we, we want to remember those, your, your children who are sick, who aren't feeling well. And Lord, that you, the God of all comfort and peace, uh, would bring people their way, that you'd heal those according to your will. And that, Lord, uh, you would do great things even in the midst of sickness and poor health. We thank you that you are in charge, that you are in control, that you've got this. And we pray this in your most precious name. Amen. Hey, there's a son, and he had just started to learn to drive. Maybe some of you have gone through this in your homes from time to time. And the son went out one evening with the, with the car, and he returned home later that evening walking that, that's not a good sign. That's not a good sign. Dad, where's the car? Son, it's across town. Dad, why is it there? <laughs> Do you remember being a teenager? Son, I was driving, and the car just went off the road. Okay. Now, and I know we now have cars that we are being... We are developing that have the scary ability to partially drive themselves somewhat successfully. But cars up until now don't just seem to go off the road all on their own when you're on your journey and say, I'm going to crash right now. I mean, that's not happening yet. Some of you are like, yes, it is. No. It's pretty easy to poke fun at uh, a young driver's poor defense, right? Um, defense of their first car accident, but it's the human thing to do. Every one of us, no matter how mature you and I think we are, we get pretty defensive at times, don't we? Especially if it's an emotionally charged situation. Um, consider your most recent defense for an ungodly response. Yes, Christians do this. Or, or some nasty behavior you perpetrated on someone else? Did you defend it with this? I'm sorry, I'm just not feeling well. Uh, work is stressing me out. Sorry, I snapped. Or, or I love this one. I can't help it. It's my personality. <laughs> well, get a new personality and I'll help you. Have you ever defended your words that were nasty with, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Okay, how many of you? How many times today? 
Do you know what the more biblical response to that situation is, right? Please forgive me for saying what I meant. I was wrong, and I'll never do that again. Can you ever forgive me? I'm an idiot. We all live in a fallen world, and this world is filled with sinful people, and you and I are one of them. <laughs> Jesus said in Luke 6:45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces fill in the blank. Are you following along? Good, good, evil, evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. That's where it comes from. No excuses. And this Easter week is a reminder. It's a reminder over the next eight days, and we're going to be vividly reminded that our biggest problem in life is us, that our greatest danger lives inside of us. It's not your spouse. It's not your friends, it's not your children, it's not your boss, it's not the government. It's not the degrading culture all around us. That's not the problem. It's not your financial distress. It's not even your bad health. It's you and it's me. And, and we can try and change our circumstances and, and I'm all for that. Sometimes we change our location. Sometimes we change our relationships. Sometimes we get a financial advisor or advice, and, and sometimes we go to the doctor for the cure. But you can't run from yourself. You can change all that other stuff, but you can't run from... Haven't you found that whenever you try to run from yourself, when you get to the end of that run, you're still there? <laughs> Oh, you I tried to lose you on that last corner, but you caught up. Easter week is a reminder of that unavoidable problem. But Easter week, as we sang almost every song this morning, is a celebration, isn't it? A hopeful celebration that you can't move towards God until God moves towards you and he has. <laughs> That's the good news. And the Easter season is not about what you and I have done for God. It's not about what we have given up for God, but what God in his glorious grace has already done for you and he's done for me. Now, now your response to that truth may be to give up something, and it probably will be. There's always some things that you and I need to shed. <laughs> but don't get that out of order. The humbling core message of Christianity is that salvation is never found in our religious duty. Even showing up here two weeks in a row isn't going to do it to, to achieve acceptance before God. The Christian hope is found in the radical things that God, our Heavenly Father, has already done for us. And you will never, ever celebrate this good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ until you accept the bad news of why it was necessary in the first place. Jesus rose to conquer sin and death because you and I cannot defeat sin and death on our own. 
So on Palm Sunday, first part of Easter week, on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem as Ben read from Matthew chapter 21. That's where we're going to be today, verses 1 to 11. And he enters Jerusalem as the Savior, right, as the King. And as he rode into Jerusalem on, on that young colt, the crowd was huge and it was gathered because they'd been coming from all over the known world for the Passover, to celebrate the Passover. Jerusalem was busting at the seams and they, they laid palm branches. You've got some palm branches here on the, at the front. They laid palm branches in front of him. They took off their cloaks and laid them down for him and the donkey to go over top of. They gave Jesus the royal treatment. Multitudes shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they just shouted it over and over and over again. And you could hear it on the other side of town. Probably outside of town. And the entire city, packed with pilgrims, was just stoked. Have you ever asked yourself, though, if this was such a triumphal entry, why then did they crucify Jesus less than a week later? <laughs> what goes wrong by Friday where Jesus is betrayed by one of his own disciples, arrested by the high priest's guard, accused by a coalition of religious leaders who typically never get along, tried by the Roman governor, sentenced to death of a common criminal, robber, death by crucifixion. What kind of a king did they expect on that Sunday? It comes down, I think, to a common scenario, something that you and I deal with every day, two choices. Sometimes it seems like there's just so many choices, right? There's really only two. There are two choices, kingdom of God or the kingdom of man. You choose. Roman historians tell us, it's written down, that the Roman governor would ride into Jerusalem with a contingent of, Roman, of the Roman legion uh, on every religious day like this. We actually have one recorded uh, in history in 30 AD. Pontius Pilate, by name, led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into Jerusalem through the western gate. And you can imagine the spectacle, right? Rome always did it up big and threw their weight around. It was, the, it was Roman might, Roman power. It was on full display for a really good reason. And from the western side of the city, through the western gate, the opposite side of the city where Jesus came into Jerusalem, he came in through the eastern gate, Pilate leads these Roman soldiers on horseback and on foot. They're clad in their leather, polished armor. They've got their, their, their gleaming uh, helmets in the sunlight and on their sides. They've got swords strapped, and every centurion would be carrying a spear. And if you were a bowman, you carried your, your, your bow and a sling of arrows across your back. The message is clear. Don't mess with Rome. And they did this every religious feast day, all the way from Caesarea. They come, because Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived, his favorite spot was a nice resort area. It's what powerful people do. They pick the best spot. And as the governor of the region, he knew it was standard practice for the Roman governor of any foreign territory to be in the capital of that 
foreign territory whenever there was a religious celebration, something big. And this was the beginning of Passover, this Sunday, a huge event for Jews across the world. And if you could make it to Jerusalem, all the better. And the Romans were very much aware that this particular feast called Passover celebrated the liberation of the Jews from another world empire, the Egyptians. If there was ever a time to talk trash, (laughs) if there was ever a time to talk rebellion, it would be during this kind of a feast. Nationalism would be at an all-time high. And the Romans had made their intolerance of rebellion well known in the past. The most recent rebellion in Judea, they they wiped out an entire town and a city. Actually, it was about five miles from Jesus' hometown of, uh, a boyhood town of Nazareth. And then they, that wasn't enough. They went to Jerusalem and they just grabbed 2,000 people and crucified them outside the city. It was like, don't do this again. This is what we do. You don't want to go there. So Pilate had to be in Jerusalem, and God saw to it that he had to be in Jerusalem. God saw to it that he would travel with a contingent of Rome's finest from his preferred headquarters in Caesarea by the sea, because God is going to use Pilate in a very significant way in five days. He made sure he was in Jerusalem. At least that's what I believe. How about you? Is God in control of even those fine details? If Pilate's procession was meant to, to show the might and the intimidation, and it was, um, Jesus' procession was meant to show the opposite. Both in Matthew and in Mark, we find Jesus' own words as he instructs his disciples to go into the city to find a donkey and its colt tied up and then to untie both and to take them without asking anybody. And if you are asked, tell the owner, if he asks, that the Lord needs them, and he'll let you have them. And then Matthew, after giving that story, that true story, quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that this action of this cult and the huge event that's going to follow actually fulfills prophecy. He, 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 Matthew says, Zechariah the prophet said, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But you see, there's way more to this passage than what Matthew tells us in Zechariah than just a description of Jesus' means of transportation for the day. The prophet Zechariah is speaking to the entire nation of Israel in that, in that chapter, in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, the prophet is reassuring the people of Judah called Judea at the time of Jesus that God has not forgotten them. Things look bad. <laughs> Things are bad. But looks can be deceiving. God's at work and he's going to do this thing. And right before the part that Matthew quotes, Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9, in verse 8, right before it, here's what Zechariah had said. Let's not take this verse out of context. Then I will encamp, God says. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. What's, what, what's God's house to the Jews? The temple 
in Jerusalem. He said, then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. I've got this. I'm on guard. I'm the one watching. You're watching and you're seeing bad things and you're interpreting it wrong. I see things the way they are and I'm in control. I know a lot of you today need to hear these words from God for your own life. God's got this. He does. It often doesn't look like it. that's That's the short and sweet of it. And then right after this verse that Matthew takes, in verse 10 of Zechariah 9, listen to what Zechariah said, the part uh, Matthew doesn't quote in verse 10. And he, this is the one riding in on the donkey, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, he's going to run the whole shebang, the whole planet. In other words, Matthew's quote from the prophet Zechariah reminds every Jew of the content and the context of the entire Zechariah passage. The message to the people of Jerusalem But what they heard and what they saw that day was God will deliver us from our oppressor, and our oppressor is Rome right now. And this Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth, that's what He's going to do. He's going to throw off the shackles and bring in justice and glory. It's going to be wonderful. But did you get the contrast? When the King comes, the part Matthew does quote according to Zechariah, he's going to come humble. Not on a war horse, but on a slow-moving colt, which was the ancient symbol of a king who's coming in peace. Not like Pilate on the other side of town. Probably a beautiful war horse that he rode that day. And these two entries into the city could not be more different. The messages they convey are such sharp contrast. Pilate leading Roman centurions, asserting the power and might of the empire of Rome, which crushes everyone who opposes it. And Jesus, riding on a colt, embodying the peace and the shelter that only the shalom of God can bring to His people. True peace. Those who watch that day will have to make a choice. We know the end of the story, and we know what choice they made. They will either serve the gods of this world, the kingdom of man, with its might, with its power, with its influence, or they will choose to serve the king of a very different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. Almighty and all-powerful, yet also a God of pure justice and pure love and pure grace. Which leader will you follow? Now's not the time to come up with a defensive excuse. I'm so busy, Pete. I'm just so busy. I got so much going on. You wouldn't believe my family. And I don't have the time. I mean, time. Who has time? Or, 
How about this? I hear this one all the time. I still got time. I still have time to decide. I don't need to worry about it right now. Which leader are you following right now? Leadership has been defined this way by someone, and I love it. Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. <laughs> I love that because, yeah, I don't care who the leader is, me, President of the United States, President of the world, I don't care. They're going to disappoint somebody sometime. But how quickly is the point? And Jesus' followers and all the others who are get caught up in this triumphal entry into Jerusalem think they're choosing to follow Jesus as their new leader. That's what they sincerely believe. They're sincere. They're enthusiastic. I mean, they're taking off their own coats, putting them on the ground, and letting Him trample on them. They're emotional. I'll bet you so many that day say, I believe. <laughs> but by the end of the week, Jesus will have disappointed that crowd at a rate faster than they could stand. And they'll turn on him, even his closest friends, the 12 disciples. One will betray him outright, and the rest will abandon him in confusion, in disappointment, and in fear. It's interesting to notice what the crowd says on that Sunday. Hosanna to who? The son of David. In other words, they're placing their faith in Jesus that He would restore the glory of the nation of Israel. He would make Israel what it once was, to the splendor when David reigned, and then his son Solomon, and that was a huge empire, and there was gold and silver. It was, uh, it was the good old days. You remember those? <laughs> a united kingdom. It wasn't even split. And that's what the Jews wanted. They wanted to be ruled by a guy like David, the legends of David that you tell your kids before they go to bed at night, a man so committed to God that the Old Testament prophets proclaimed that the coming Messiah, when he comes, would sit on David's throne. The Messiah would bring back the glory of Israel. He would rid the nation of foreign oppression. He would take away taxes. Is this sounding good? He would rule benevolent, benevolently. He would, he would bring justice to the common person who doesn't get any justice. Who doesn't want that? Sign me up. I will vote for that. And to be fair to their line of thinking, Jesus had challenged the religious rulers of the day already. It's interesting he never really challenged the Romans at all in his speeches, in his preaching, in his teaching. But the local rulers is where he laid the blame. And he had said to the people and to them right to their face that the temple was not the only way to find God's forgiveness. What? And further that the temple would one day be destroyed. Blasphemy. And added to this, the common people are already, he's kind of got them on his side up to this point, against these wealthy religious leaders who they would be considering to be probably sellouts to Rome, you know, pandering to whatever Rome wants in order to live so well off while the common folk suffered. 
Yeah, tell them, Jesus, set it straight, do it. I, I love this guy. Don't you love this guy? <laughs> of course, the religious leaders made their living off the temple. So you see where this is going? And they would lose all their power and all their prestige and all their wealth if there was no temple. Temple was the source of their income. And heaven forbid that there would be no temple any longer. It's the only place where you can come and offer a sacrifice and be forgiven by God. Where else would you go? Blasphemy. So when Jesus vividly illustrates what it is to think this kind of blasphemy by miraculously saving the lame man. Remember the guy who got let down by his four friends through the roof? And he says first, your sins are forgiven spiritually before he says, and now I'm going to physically heal you. He challenged the authority of the entire temple system. No temple needed. No priest needed. No sacrifice needed. Just Jesus. And when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple in the next verses after the triumphal entry, after his entrance into, into Jerusalem. Matthew records it in chapter 21, same chapter, but verse 13. It is written, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a den of robbers. Whoa! He's exposing all their corruption in the temple taxes. He's exposing all their corruption in the scandalous monetary exchange rates that they were charging people and the dishonesty of those who sold animals that weren't worthy to be sacrificed because they were blemished. And by the end of the week, Jesus had disappointed, condemned, and alienated some very, very powerful people. All the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, most of the Levitical priests, we read that some of them believed Jesus, and others who ruled on Rome's behalf, they were all part of the same game, the same corrupt system, a system of oppression and domination, the same system Pilate was a part of. Different name, same system. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Whether Jesus' entry into Jerusalem from the East Gate occurred on the exact same day as Pilate's yearly procession on the west side from the Western Gate, we don't know. But they both happened. And the contrast is unmistakable. A sharp contrast between kings and kingdoms was on display in Jerusalem, it's on display in your life, in my life today. And although many of the common people actually thought that they were siding and choosing Jesus, they were doing it, their motives for doing it were for the same reasons that the high priest and all his cronies coddled up to Rome. They thought Jesus could do for them what Rome had done for their rulers, make my life better. Isn't that why you vote for who you vote for? 
Isn't that the bottom line so often? I will make your life better. I vote. Deliver them from the oppressive system that they were living under. They lived and worked every day, scrounging around to make ends meet. They wanted Jesus to turn the tables on this cruel, taxing Roman government, and they thought Jesus would give them the Israeli dream. (laughs) But Jesus never defeated the Romans. Jesus never dissolved the tax system. Jesus never put common people in charge of the government. And furthermore, he never would. So their religious leaders, all of them, who, as I said earlier, never agreed on anything, they do agree on this. Wow. That Jesus is going to attract the attention of the Roman Empire by what he's saying and what he's doing and how the people are rising up, especially during the Passover, and Rome is going to come down hard and he's going to come down fast on the entire nation. Better for one to die and for many to survive. And the Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, picked up on this when he wrote in John eleven forty nine. 49, he re- records for us, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, they're all arguing about what they're going to do with Jesus, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man, he's talking about Jesus, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So when Jesus is accused, and when he's brought before Pilate and before the now angry mobs, they are stirred up pretty easily by the religious elite of the day. And to appease the crowds, that were swelling in the city of Jerusalem during the Passover week, Pilate had this usual custom of releasing a prisoner, and usually it would be a political prisoner because that's who most of the prisoners were. But on this last week, in the life of Jesus, Pilate doesn't offer the crowd a political hero. He offers them a choice between Barabbas, a known thief, and Jesus, a failed Messiah. And the crowd begged for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be executed, and not just by any means. They call out for him to be crucified. Crucify him is now their new cry. Before it was Hosanna. And now it's crucified because crucifixion is the one form of capital punishment that would show Rome that the Jews were loyal to the empire. And it would be a humiliation for Jesus as a Jew, even in his death. The final stab in the back. But I'm getting ahead of the story of this week, a story which we're going to continue this Friday at 6.30 and conclude next Sunday at 11.00. But for one moment, as we meditate together on God's Word, ask yourself this. I'm asking myself this. If I had been in Jerusalem, and I had been witness to these two displays of kingdoms, 
which would I really have chosen to follow? I mean, really, if I was really there in the midst of it all, would I have caved to the pressure of Rome? Would I have feared the pressure of the religious elite who controlled everything? And what would my motives have been in choosing them? Today, how are our daily life choices revealing who it is that we really do follow? It's a choice we make every day to choose human pride, to choose selfishness, to choose consumerism over godly love and godly sacrifice for each other to choose the way things have always been done over the way God intends them to be. Two processions, two opposite theologies, two choices. Which would you choose? What kind of king do you expect? Because he's coming again. And on whose side will you be? I'm going to ask you to rise with me. We've looked at God's Word. My prayer has been all week that we would each receive from His Word what God intends us to be challenged with. So let's pray to God, and then after prayer, remain standing and continue to speak to God in song. Heavenly Father, we at this point bow before You, the author and finisher of our faith, faith, the Lord of creation, our master, our savior, our, our great king. And we thank you for the gift and the sacrifice of your son and our savior, Jesus the Christ. And God, we pray that our minds and our lives would step up, that we'd be found faithful in our conversation with each other, with others, with our neighbors, that we'd show your love and your grace and your mercy to everyone we meet, that we would, we would share with them the obvious bad news, but the good news we'd emphasize, that you would fill us with words that would be clear and that you would draw people to yourself and we would see them saved before our eyes by you. We pray all this in the name of our Son and Savior, Savior Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity that we get to have now to sing to you and to you alone. Amen.